0: Good morning. Today is the second Sunday after Pentecost. Following the celebration of Pentecost two weeks ago and Trinity Sunday last week, we are now entering into the longest liturgical season of the year, Ordinary Time. And with the coronavirus pandemic showing no signs of letting up, especially here in Arkansas, and the nation gripped by protests against police violence and systemic racism, well, this time feels far from ordinary. Extraordinary, perhaps, but ordinary, no. But we'll stay in ordinary time until early December for Advent. It's our, As I mentioned, it's our longest liturgical season, and it's a good way to, to observe God at work in our everyday lives, in our everyday routines and rhythms. You see, the Holy Spirit is constantly showing up, especially in the everyday. So in this time where so much is not normal, I encourage us to stay vigilant for the Spirit and see where she's appearing, where she's taking us. It may be surprising. In turbulent times like these, you'd be correct to imagine that that we are the lost sheep that Jesus sees in today's gospel. We're a nation seemingly harassed and helpless. The harvest is great. The laborers are few, or so it seems. Today's reading also introduces by name to the 12 apostles, called to reach out to the 12 tribes of Israel and bring them the news of the kingdom of heaven, of Jesus. The word apostle means sent one, and these apostles are the sent ones, and, and by all appearance, they're kind of a ragtag group. A bunch of four Galilean fishermen, they include our very own Peter, who we know will deny Jesus three times before his death. James and John, the brothers Zebedee, who were also known as the sons of thunder because of their great tempers. There's Matthew, the tax collector. Then as now, collecting taxes was not a widely respected line of work. Simon, who we're here told is the Canaanite, but other translations more accurately call him Simon the Zealot. Luke's gospel calls him Simon the the Zealot too. And the Zealots were the rabble-rousers of the late first century, thinking them like the Antifa or the Proud Boys of their day. They sought to disrupt Roman rule in any way possible, and created so much chaos that by the year 70, Rome had enough. They destroyed the temple and dispersed the Jewish population across the empire. Zealots were controversial figures. And probably the most surprising of this ragtag group of apostles was including Judas Iscariot, the very man who would betray Jesus. Even he was gifted to perform great acts. Now these apostles weren't the gilded saints, we've come to know most of them in our time. They too may have felt harassed and helpless, like the lost sheep about the shepherd. But they responded to Jesus' call and did great things. I wonder if we too are being called to do great things right now. Like those apostles, those sent ones, are we also sent ones ourselves? Our own Bishop Benfield has been on something of a role these past couple of weeks in his weekly Communique newsletter. Last week he performed an exquisite takedown of political leaders who co-opt religious symbols like Bibles or church fronts for their own secular political gain. And this week he had even closer to home in a time of racial unrest and for many Soul searching, Bishop Benfield laid out how the Episcopal Church here in Arkansas is deeply consistent, complicit in the systemic sin of racism. You see, the first Episcopal priest ordained in Arkansas, William Stout, was a major slaveholder with plantations at the foot of Petty Jean Mountain. And during the Civil War, he left his family here in Arkansas while taking the majority of his 151 slaves to Texas to protect his investment. A man of God, indeed. And then in 1903, the church in Arkansas was offic- officially segregated. The bishop at the time said it was for the greater good of the church. And in a surprising piece of good news, Arkansas elected the first black bishop ordained in U.S. soil, Edward Debbie, in 1917. But unfortunately, his mission was to leave the church's African American congregants to form their own denomination, leaving the church to white folk. Finally, in 1932, the election of a racist bishop resulted in members of the black clergy being denied Holy Communion. They were instead relegated to the basement. The uproar was so great that the National Church refused to recognize that bishop. You see, as a church, we are far from innocent. And if we celebrate our successes, which we do throughout the year, then we need also to participate in the failures, even if we weren't the instigators ourselves. The vision suggests that to remain silent now would add to our collective sins. We need to, as he tells us, quote, face racial discrimination in America and take actions to change the structures that perpetuate racial and economic inequality, end quote. He likens us to the Old Testament prophets who stand at the city gates and, quote, defend the very people who have no helper, end quote. The very people who have no helper. You see, he's telling us that we are the laborers. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. We must be the sent ones. We must be the apostles of our day. We too may be a ragtag group of folks, but we are being sent. In his letter to the Romans that we heard today, Paul calls his listeners to boast in their suffering. And there's no question our brothers and sisters of color in this country have suffered and continue to suffer in ways that the rest of us cannot imagine. That's why we must, as the bishop says, defend the very people who have no helper. See, here's the thing with suffering, though it hurts the one causing the suffering, too. Suffering is a two way street. How can we, who avoided much of the real pain, also participate in boasting our suffering? As part of my work in racial reconciliation over these past weeks, I wanted to look into my own family's complicity in causing suffering. One of the last race-related lynchings in this country took place not here in the South, as one might expect, but in my home state, Indiana. On August 7, 1930, which is just over 90 years ago, It took place in Marion, Indiana. Three black boys were taken from their jail cells. They were beaten and hung from a tree in the courthouse square. A crowd of thousands gathered and cheered them on. One of the three, James Cameron, somehow escaped and survived. The other two weren't so lucky. As I've said before from up here, the South gets a bad rap when it comes to racism. It's every bit as bad, if not worse, than the North. Just more in cities. It's no surprise to me that the latest uprising started in Lily White, Minnesota. Now my father had many family members going back generations in Marion, Indiana. And I remember visiting them a few times as a young boy myself. I even became pen pals briefly with an extended cousin. That group of family had lived in Marion for decades. They were the pillars of that small town. And I had no evidence, but also little doubt, that members of the Warren clan were part of that luncheon. They might not have led it, they might have been part of the thousands gathered to watch, but I just know that they participated in some way. And knowing this, I too am somehow suffering in this heinous act. Not the deep physical suffering of the victims, but the suffering of the perpetrators. My privilege doesn't negate that somehow I am hurt by this act, a part of my moral fiber is hurting, that part of our collective moral fiber is torn. And if I seek, as Paul tells us, to boast in his suffering, then maybe my boasting is the recognition of me and my family's complicity in that act. I lament it. And if by lamenting, by suffering in it, I make myself available to Paul's redemptive chain of suffering that produces endurance, that produces character that produces hope then maybe I can be assured that as he says hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts maybe my own act of ownership of the sins of our fathers can help me heal me can help heal the fractures in our community even if just a little bit as a side note, in the 2000s, I found myself sitting across a table from the third young man lynched that night, from James Cameron. He was in his 90s by that point, but still incredibly lively and thoughtful and funny. He had, helped, he had helped found the American Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee and dedicated his life to telling his story of racial injustice so others wouldn't live. I didn't know enough of my family's story at that time, but I wish I had. I'd like to think that I'd ask his forgiveness and the Warren family's complicity in the act that nearly took his young life. I'd like to think that he would forgive me. And maybe a tear in our collective moral fiber could start to heal. I'd like to think that. Paul also tells us in Romans that because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. This peace shall alone. It's more than comfort. It's more than the freedom from pain that we think of when we use the English word peace. Shalom is more like well-being. It's knowing we are safe in the comfort of God's grace. Grace granted unmerited in the death of Jesus on the cross for all our sins. Shalom is not without pain. It's not without challenging times like our own time. But it is deeper comfort. In this comfort, this deeper sense of well-being, we can be our own versions of the apostles, of the sent ones. We are sent to, in Bishop Benfield's words, defend the very people who have no help. We continue to make our voices heard. We use our gifts and most of all our privilege to heal the harassed and help us. Because the harvest is great. The laborers are few. Both the oppressed and the oppressor need our shalom, our sense of well being, in the midst of turmoil. We need shalom. We need God's grace. We are not sheep. We are not the sheep without a shepherd that Jesus sees all around him in the gospel. We have our shepherd. In the words of our beloved 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. With our shepherd at our backs, we can act. We can be the sent ones. We are the sent ones. Shalom. Amen.